glad you have chosen to gather with us by his grace today and worship Jesus. Uh, if you're new with us, we are the Crossing Church. We are a church the, of missional communities that are spread out throughout the region to be the family of God, uh, servants of King Jesus on mission sent by the Holy Spirit to share the gospel and see our entire region saturated with the gospel of Jesus Christ and see lives transformed. And then we gather like this one time a week on Sunday morning to worship together and celebrate all that Jesus has done. And then we also have these things called DNA groups, men with men, women with women, going deeper in our walk with Jesus, uh, being transformed and sanctified by Jesus. And so we'd love to tell you more about all of that um, if you want to know more about all of that. But today we're worshiping Jesus through song. Now we're worshiping Jesus through prayer and through the word being proclaimed, through communion, through fellowship later on. And um, we pray that you meet Jesus today because he is here. So let's pray together. Uh, we Every Sunday we pray for some speci uh, specific needs, um, and so let's do that together. We worship you, Father, for you are holy and good, thoroughly and completely good. You, Father, are perfect in every way. Thank you for making your way to us, for wanting to know us, for wanting and choosing to love us. You choose us when we were choosing and running after death, and yet you still came after us to embrace us, ever transforming us into your likeness. Let us be like you for your glory and for the good of those lost children you're calling to yourself. Have your way. Establish your kingdom in and through us all around this region and around the world. Father, we thank you for faithful co-laboring local churches like First Baptist Calhoun and Covenant Presbyterian and The Well. And we ask that you enrich them and us and grow us up into your maturity. Let the whole body of the crossing in these local churches, as well as other faithful churches in this area, have such strong evidence of your grace in your midst and such strong love for each other that it becomes evident to Monroe and West Monroe and Calhoun and Sterlington and the whole surrounding region, the work of King Jesus that is good and life-giving. Father, we ask for gospel saturation, your family dripping with your love, taken up with worship for you, creating environments in which no man, woman, or child in this region could ever go through a week or even a day without a gospel encounter, a loving gospel encounter with one of your sent ones. Let our neighbors and coworkers see your love at work and hear the good news of your salvation proclaimed. We ask that you bless ministries like Life Choices and the Vine Project. Give them support from local churches like this one and help us help them accomplish the task you've put before them to love babies and mothers and entire families with your love. Father, let the hearts of unreached people groups be open to hear your word when it's finally proclaimed to them. Give the V family good connections for their future work among the Wanchi. Continue to build up the whole team we pray for Abel's arrival in a, just a few weeks to be without complication and let the V family experience the beauty and the joy of new birth and the arrival of their son. Continue to bless the work and families of Pastor Paul and Timothy among the Aceh and the Hana in China. And we ask that you would send other national workers to join them in planting churches among the Baima and the Bonin and the Tongren and the Tibetan Jone. Bless the R family and their teammates as they continue learning language and preparing to plant churches among the Laz and the Zaza people. Let the Mandor people come to know you through your word as it's being translated. 
We ask you to guide the T family in their work and bless those conversations in the AJ Cafe. God, you deserve worship from these Turkish Muslims, and only you and no one else deserves their worship. Now, Father, we ask for your blessings as we dig into your word. More than just a sermon, we need to hear the word of God, the truth of God, empowered by the spirit of God to the deepest places in our soul to change us, to give us life, to give us hope, to give us joy, to challenge us, to convict us. Do all of these things as evidence that you are here and that you are at work and you are loving and kind and powerful. And we give you the glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. As you turn to James chapter 3, James chapter 3, we've all done it and said something that we immediately regretted. If we took a few seconds, and it would only take seconds, immediately coming to mind would be those situations when words left your mouth and you're, you want to get them right back. It's too late. They landed on their chosen target, and the damage was done. And maybe it was kind of innocent. It wasn't that much damage. It's like, oh, it's kind of awkward. Man, I wish I would have said that better. Or, or maybe it was like a bomb going off. And you can say, I'm sorry, but the bomb has done the damage. Or it would be equally as easy and may even maybe more painful to recall the times in which we were the recipients of those words. Like, it doesn't take long. Just me writing this out, immediately, I went back like 30 years. I was a kid in Baton Rouge, and this mom was mad at me and yelling, me, yelling at me about something with her, her kid. And you feel what you feel. Your mind takes you back to those scenes, and it's, it's it can be traumatic. It's very hurtful. Maybe it wasn't intentional. Maybe it was someone just taking out life's frustrations on you, their own fears and wounds and pressures and insecurities. But whatever reason, the arrows of their words found your flesh and the wounds were made and the scars remain. And even today, so many years later, you hear the words, you see the scene, you feel the pain. Like no one hit us. No one shot us. No one tackled us, poisoned us, threw something at us. It wasn't even sticks and stones. It was just words. And the pain that we inflicted or the pain that we received is still very, very fresh. Like, God, help us. How do we stop giving this out? How do we stop being wounded? This next passage in James that we're walking through will tackle the problem of our surprisingly powerful tongues. And I've known all week that I was digging through this passage, and I was telling Jennifer this morning, and she's like, you should tell everybody that. I'm like, okay. And all week I'm like, this is a hard passage. I don't know where the good news is. It's just bad, 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 and, and seemingly hopeless. Like, where is the good news? And then you see it. And you're like, wow, this is good news. And she's like, Jared, that's like life. It's hard, hard, hard. You can't see the presence of God in his good news. And then all of a sudden you see it, and you're like, yes. So I pray that that happens for you this morning as we dig through a, a very difficult passage We've been walking through James since Easter, and we'll be there through Christmas, Lord willing. James has been helping us see over the first two chapters the difference between a genuine profession of faith in Jesus and a non-genuine profession of faith, which is incredibly relevant to us in a Bible Belt context. Just because you say you're a Christian doesn't mean you're a Christian. 
We are saved by grace through faith. Yes, we're not saved by works. We know that. But if we are genuinely saved by grace through faith, then we will do genuine faith-driven works. Or in the language of James, if we've been given birth by the word of truth, chapter 1, verse 18, if we've humbly received the implanted word, verse 21, which can save our souls, then we will be, and some of you who've been with us can kind of mentally move with us to the rest of chapters 1 and 2, we will be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, because we know human anger doesn't accomplish God's righteousness. We'll be doers of the word and not just hearers. We'll be someone who practices true religion, which is controlling your tongue, caring for widows and orphans, keeping yourself unstained from the world. We won't be showing favoritism of the rich over the poor, not just loving in word, but also in deed for brothers and sisters in need. Loving your neighbor as yourself, speaking and acting as those who will give an account. And so our works back up what we profess, and that includes, as he's already mentioned, our tongue and what we say. Which, as we'll see today, might be the hardest of them all to demonstrate. It's so hard, as we saw last week in verse 1 of chapter 3, that if you plan to be a teacher of God's truth, you should heed this warning. Not many should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we will receive a stricter judgment. Now, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 that it is a good and noble thing to aspire to be an elder, a pastor. But James says, yeah, but realize the more you lead, the more you teach, the more you teach, the harder it is to always control your words. And the more likely you're going to give account for words that you wish you didn't say. So some of you, he says, should be teachers. The church does need some, but not many because of the stricter accountability. But if God does put a desire in your heart to be one of those teachers, then you'll humbly embrace this stricter judgment. And even by his grace over time, you will show that you're growing in spiritual maturity, which includes growing in a mature controlling of the tongue. And that's what we see first in verse 2. Controlling the tongue is a sign of spiritual maturity. Verse 2 says, For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is mature, able also to control the whole body. So right before James jumps into this long section about the evils of our tongue and how we can't tame the tongue, it does so much damage, a passage that feels hopeless, here's a glimmer of hope. If our faith is genuine, it shows up in our works, including the tongue. This is so serious, not everyone should be a teacher. And yes, we all stumble, as he says, in many ways. Ray Ortland uh, has a phrase that I think I share with somebody every week, including myself. At best, we are just saints stumbling forward by his grace. We all stumble in many ways. If we're honest, if we're not just pretending to be great and pretending to have it all together. We all stumble in many ways. We're all saints stumbling forward by his grace. So let's just kill this desire for perfectionism. That shadow side of you that you're trying to live up to and you're constantly beating yourself up for because you're not being that perfect version of you. Just, just kill that person. Let them die because it's not attainable in this life. You're not going to get there. We all stumble in many ways. Let's be humble and dependent on Jesus for everything. And many of us stumble in our words, what we say. This understanding of the weakness found in our tongue shows all, up all over the Bible. Isaiah, for instance, the great prophet of God, is given a vision of God in his holy temple, and despite the fact that Isaiah, like Job, was probably the most righteous person on earth at the time, when he's confronted with God's holiness in Isaiah 6, his response isn't to puff his chest up and say, well, of course I'm getting to see God in his temple. Look at me. I'm Isaiah. Hello. No, his response is 
Woe is me, for I am ruined. If you dig into the language of that passage, it's literally I'm coming apart at the seams. I'm, I'm psychologically disintegrating. I'm falling apart. The probably the most righteous man on earth in the presence of a holy God was falling apart at the seams. I don't belong in his presence. And the origin of this sinful confession is this. Woe is me for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips. As a prophet of God, the one place he could have been most prideful about was actually the location of his greatest conviction. When Paul is laying out the full depravity of the human condition that he's so famous for in Romans 1 through 3, so much of that section in Romans 3 is about our speech. Romans 3 verse 10, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There's no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. This is the human condition. But if someone is mature, James implies here, as evidence in controlling the tongue, then it is someone who can not only control the tongue, he says, but the whole body. In other words, again, to get the whole context of James, we're a people who profess Jesus who need to have a life that backs it up if the profession is real, which includes what we say. And while we do all stumble in many ways and we all fail to live up fully to what we profess, if we can do something really simple like control the tongue, we will show that we are mature and able to control the whole body. There's our glimmer of hope. All of us can and some of us do grow in this ability, enough even to become teachers held more accountable to a stricter judgment. But James also wants us to see how impossible this really is, especially if you believe that controlling the tongue is simply a matter of behavior modification. Like if my take-home application is, okay, three ways to control your tongue. Number one, count to ten before you say anything. Number two, write it on a piece of paper first. Number three, share it with somebody and let them speak into that. If that's the takeaway, just do these things to help you control your tongue. You, you, you have no hope. You might do good today. Those are good things. You might do good for a little while, but you're still going to fail. They have no value to help with the root issue. So let's dig into that. The very next section, very bleak at how bad the problem is. The tongue is small, powerful, and cannot be tamed by man. Verse 3. Now, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we direct their whole bodies and consider ships, though very large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So too, though a tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. Consider how a small fire sets ablaze a large forest. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members. It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. James uses three well-known analogies of the ancient world that we grasp today. But we could add, like a steering wheel controls a car, like a yoke, Y-O-K-E, controls an airplane. Something very small can control something much bigger. As our students found out yesterday, horse riding, the bit in the mouth of the horse, can take a p very powerful animal and turn it into a personal recreational vehicle. Large ships aren't turned by getting out and pushing it, or it's not just the wind. There's a rudder in the back. 
proportionally a much smaller piece of wood than the ship can, can be, and it turns and steers the ship on course. Not sure how common forest fires were in the ancient world, but they understood the concept, a strike of lighting, lightning, a spark in dry brush, woods, grass, and wind will ignite a destructive force that literally can't be stopped. Like even today, we can't stop forest fires. We just have to burn up more fuel and kind of surround it and let it die out. So it is with the tongue, very small. In humans, the tongue is on average less than four inches and weighs about two ounces. So think a piece of breakfast sausage on a McDonald's sausage biscuit. I don't know if that helps or not. <laughs> Can literally destroy lives. It wasn't quarter pounder. It's like an eighth of a pounder. Can literally destroy lives, relationships, companies, and nations. The tongue isn't more wicked than other members of our body, but it's almost always involved in all the sin we commit. And when we sin with the tongue, it affects everything. Sets fire to everything. It's so bad, it's described as being set on fire by hell. The word translated as hell in the New Testament is Gehenna. It's a place outside of Jerusalem, which was like a city dump. Fires just continually burning. A place in the Old Testament where children were sacrificed to pagan gods. In those days, it was the most reprehensible place on earth they could think of. And it's connected, Gehenna, hell, with Satan, the enemy of God the primary agent behind the damage that's done with tongues. He's the father of lies. He's the accuser. He's the slanderer. From the garden in which we, he told our first parents, did God really say, to the temptation of Jesus, all vocalized temptations, he could not, did not try to impose his will on Jesus. He just presented options. So it is with us, the manifestation of our sin nature, the part of us that works in conjunction with the desires of God's enemy is primarily through our tongues. In other words, we are most like God's enemy when we use our tongues to do his work. To gossip and to slander and to accuse and to lie. Because that's how he does his work. It's all he can do. But it causes so much destruction and it's all in speech which is why you see so much of the Bible dealing with our speech. Ephesians 4, we looked at this verse before, uh, verses 29 through 32. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need, so that it gives grace to those who hear. Don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. In the context of foul speech, speech that does not edify, bitterness, anger, wrath, shouting, slander, malice, in the context of that, Paul says, don't grieve God's spirit. Our, our words can actually grieve God. This is written to Christians. When Christians use these words, use our words, we can grieve God's spirit. Instead, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God forgave us in Christ. Like, no one here would say, I want my speech to be full of foul language and tearing people down and bitterness and angry, anger and wrath and shouting at people and slanderous and full of malice. Like every single one of us and probably most people we meet in life would say, I do want to be kind and compassionate and forgiving. So then let's just do it. It's that simple, right? Just do what's good and don't do the bad. That, it shouldn't be hard. Verse 7, uh, 
Every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish is tamed and has been tamed by humankind. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. We can tame all kinds of animals. Like imagine if James knew about our zoos and our aquariums and things that we do today with animals. Like God has given us so much wisdom and creativity and skill and have dominion over nature that we're making killer whales jump through flaming hoops of fire. It's amazing what we can do with taming animals. We've learned how to create new species of hypoallergenic dogs like golden doodles and labradoodles and sheepadoodles, which is not a great species, but if you enjoy it, wonderful. We've tried to make cats better by making them hairless, but they're still just a cat. Now they're ugly. We've flown to the moon. We're trying to go to Mars. We're dropping submarines in the deepest part of the ocean. We've even created TikTok. Like, what can we not do? We can't tame the tongue. We can't tame the tongue. Seemingly the easiest of all, yet the reason we still have wars and strife and division and destruction is because we can't make this two-ounce muscle do what we want. It is a restless evil. In other words, you don't get old enough in which this doesn't stay a battle. You don't outlive this. It's full of deadly poison, just seeking to infect and destroy. One author wrote this, the tongue plans evil and utters hateful thoughts. We say someone is selfish or lazy, lazy because we think it, but when we say it, we think it all the more. Thus the tongue sets the whole course or cycle of life on fire. Throughout the changing circumstances of life, the tongue continues to create evils. When we're young, we whine. When we're old, we criticize. When we fail, we excuse ourselves and blame others. When we, su when we succeed or our children succeed, we foul it by boasting. Through every turn of life, the tongue promotes evil. This is pretty, this is what I was thinking all week. Man, this is not good news. Like maybe we should just take a vow of silence. And that's our takeaway application. So let's begin to turn and find hope for us in this passage. Going back to verse 2, because the tongue is so powerful, if you can win the battle of the tongue, you win the war. The problem with that is if you think that controlling the tongue is the task, then, then we're missing the root issue. Like if you're just focused on the bit and the horse, the rudder and the ship, you forget that there is an unspoken third party, the rider and the bit and the horse, the ship's pilot and the rudder and the ship. So it is with the tongue. It's not just thinking and we make our tongue do what our brain tells it to do. There's a third party that we all know is the third party, and that's the heart. Matthew 12 We've looked at this verse for a few weeks. Either make the tree good and its fruit will be good and make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad for a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. If we win the battle with the tongue, we win. But the problem isn't the tongue, the problem is the heart. And while we cannot control or tame the tongue, we can see our hearts transformed and changed. We can't do it, God can. We can see him do it, feel him do it, experience him do it. In fact, notice in James says in verse 8, no one can tame the tongue, no person can tame the tongue, but God can tame the tongue because God can change the heart. That's what he specializes in, changing hearts that need to be changed. 
So let's look at the last section. The tongue can only be tamed by God changing our heart. Verse 9. With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree produce olives? My brothers and sisters, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a saltwater spring yield fresh water. Now this passage, if you're like me, you just read it and you're like, it's just more bleakness. Where's the good news in that? Pointing out how inconsistent we are with our tongues. But within the comparison, blessing and cursing, sweet and bitter, figs and olives, salt and fresh water, Within these comparisons are the positives. Like, do you see it? Or do you just see the more bad news? We can use our tongues, yes, to do great harm. We all know that. We've done it, received it, got it. But we can also use our tongues to bless our Father. And instead of cursing fellow image bearers, we can bless and edify them too. But the ability to bless our Father and bless others only comes from a changed heart. So if you think about this morning, your struggle with taming the tongue, the question is, where's your heart? What's the condition of your heart? Are we living out of the freedom of the gospel of a transformed heart, a changed and changing heart? Or are we staying in the courtroom of religion? Tim Keller talks about a course called Sonship taught by a church years ago in Philadelphia, which makes the case that though we say We are sinners saved by grace. We don't really live like that's true. Sounds like James. That's what James is talking about. Though you say you're believers, you're not really living a transformed life. And to demonstrate this, this course gives everyone a tongue assignment. For one week, write down six things and keep it with you and do these things for a week. Number one, don't complain or grumble. Number two, don't boast about anything at all. Number three, don't gossip or repeat bad information about somebody else. Number four, don't verbally beat someone down even a little bit. Number five, don't defend or excuse yourself no matter what. Number six, always affirm other people. And if you can do this for more than an hour, you can't boast about it. The point of this impossible exercise is to help us see that though we claim to be sinners saved by the free grace of God, we really live as though we're still in the courtroom always working and striving for our approval, always striving to make ourselves right. So we'll beat others down to lift ourselves up. We'll defend ourselves and boast about ourselves so others will know, I'm really okay. I'm a good guy. You should like me. You should trust me. I'm successful. We live defending ourselves, saying we're fine and good. Nothing to see here. Don't worry about me. Worry about yourself. Or we live not defending ourselves. We live prosecuting others. Gossiping, criticizing, demeaning, beating them down so that we'll feel better about ourselves. We live in the courtroom, and the gospel says, get out of the courtroom. The verdict has been handed down. You are forgiven. You are secure in the love of your Father in heaven. You are a new creation in Christ. All of your sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. You are fully and forever a child of God, never to be kicked out of the family. That is what God has decreed through justification in his courtroom because Jesus did all the necessary work and we're trusting in him in our right standing before God. We don't have to live in the courtroom any longer. All the things that really matter have been settled and are secure forever. Forever. 
our identity, our calling, our place, our understanding of who we are in God's family. We don't have to live in the courtroom. You're not guilty. Jesus has done it all. Yes, as we saw in verse 1 and 2, there are other places in James and other places in the New Testament. We're still going to be held accountable, but it's, it's more like a parent with a child going over how the child's done that day or that week. Parents are going to kick the kid out of the family or say, you're no longer my son or my daughter. I don't love you any longer. No, you're always my son, my daughter. I'll always love you, for you, fight for you, help you. Let's talk about a few things. Let's do a little better. That's the kind of accountability that we face as God's children, secure as dearly loved sons and daughters of our Father forever. Nothing can take that away. Read Romans 8, free to be his kid, not having to defend ourselves, put, our, put down others, boast. Just we can be springs of water, of life flowing from transformed hearts to bless our Father and to bless other image bearers. That's what we're set free to be. Like words are so vital to who we are. We come, words come from our heart and show what's in it, and words go to our heart and can change our heart. Like we can think a thought, but then we actually say it and we make that thought more real than it should be. We can also take a word coming to our heart intending to harm us, and instead of cursing in return, we can let Jesus absorb it and we give back blessing. And that literally changes our heart as we return blessing for cursing. Imagine having a heart so secure and captivated by Jesus, we could actually obey Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do we see how transformational that is in our hearts and how transformational that would be in our community of people, in our city, in our region, if just God's people exchanged curses for blessings? It's possible because Jesus is alive in us and has and is changing our hearts. And so our tongues can be, he says, you can have blessings come from your tongues, be springs of life. It happens. And it's important because words are so important to who we are as humans. James points this out by taking, talking about cursing people made in God's likeness, fellow image bearers. It's not, we're not cursing inanimate objects we're cursing fellow image bearers who get their identity from what God says about them, who God's called and created them to be, and they too have to fight for that identity through what others say about them and what, and what they and what we say about ourselves. We uh, started volleyball this week, and one of the things that we practice as a team is what we call affirmations. I've probably shared this before. And we, we say, in, in light of Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. We want to love each other and outdo one another in honoring each other, firm each other. And so we'll take time during these short team meetings between practices to let the girls affirm one another. And we tell them this is why. This is what we're trying to practice here. It's always cute. It's like, you sat really good today. and Your pastors are so awesome. Your serves are killing. You were so aggressive. And we tell them it don't have to be volleyball. It can just be other things. I love your hair. It's all very, very cute. We're trying to ingrain in them and ingrain in that program, and hopefully they'll take with them wherever they go in life, is we, we have so many voices in our world beating us down, tearing us down. And sometimes those voices aren't coming from the outside. They're coming from the inside. And we listen to our negative inner voice more than we preach truth to our souls. 
And all of these words are just shaping us. And we all need a cheering section of people in our life who are behind us, for us, with us, spurring us on, picking us up, pushing us forward, affirming, loving, being kind and compassionate. Yeah, we get off the rails. We need somebody to come along and say, hey, man, what are you doing? We need a little exhortation, a little rebuke. Sure, that happens. But most of what we need is love and encouragement, affirmation and kindness and compassion. Not people always telling us, well, here's what you did wrong with that. That was good, but it could have been better. That's awesome. You stumbled forward a little more by his grace. Let's do it again tomorrow. Because he's at work in you and he's for you and he loves you. And we have this saying in our house we've been saying for a few months now, man, people just want to be loved. Deep down, that's what people want. They want to be loved. They want to be cared for. They want to be looked after. They want to be affirmed. They want to know their Father in heaven is for them, has created them to know him. Like little kids who need tons and tons of encouragement. Like I've yet, and if you've met this person, please, I want to meet them. I've yet to meet someone too encouraged. Like they're just brimming with encouragement. Don't give me more encouragement. I'm good. And we become a community that is life-giving and vibrant. As we are sent out in community into our city, we become these little outposts of blessing and not cursing, of life and not death. As we invite in the widow and the orphan, as we embrace those trapped in religion or rebellious sin, those far from God, as they begin to do life with us as a group of people whose hearts have been changed and are being changed, people will say, my gosh, these people are crazy. Like all they do is just love and encourage and affirm and speak truth and are life-giving. Like what do they have? How can I get in on that? I want to know more. We don't create hoops for people to jump over. We just give out his grace and love like candy from a Mardi Gras float. We just throw it out. Who wants more? We got more to give because he's given us everything. Who else needs to know they have a father in heaven who loves them and created them to know him? And this is all done with words. Life-giving words flowing from transformed hearts. We are secure in Jesus and we spread that to others. Actions too, yes, but words for sure. And if you're here and you just can't see that because you're so hurt, your heart's been so wounded and hardened by sin or by life, when Jesus was entering the city of Jerusalem on the day of his triumphal entry, riding on a, a donkey, the people were crying out, Hosanna to him in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the religious leaders hated that. They knew what the people were saying about him. And they, they told Jesus, you've got to make these people shut up. They can't say that about you. And what did Jesus say in response? He said, if they stop singing to me, even the rocks will cry out. If your heart feels as hard as a rock because it's been so hurt, Jesus can give tongues and voices to even rocks. There's always hope because Jesus is alive. Anything can happen. Anything can happen. Life can be transformed in three seconds through the power of Jesus Christ and his gospel. And he is here with us and he can change you today. He can set you on a path of change and growth and maturity. And we want to be a part of it. Because you can't do it by yourself. you got to have community. You've got to have God's people walking with you. And it's not necessarily going to happen overnight. It's lifelong. And so if you want to know more about that, if you want to know more about Jesus, 
If you want to talk with someone, that's what we're here for. Let's talk today before you leave. Let's go have lunch. Let's carry the conversation further. Father, thank you so much for the person and work of Jesus. Sometimes all we see is how broken we are, how hurt we are, how much we've wounded others, how much we've been wounded by words. And it's hard to see the good news of your gospel. But even more powerful than the sinful words we've spoken or the sinful words that we've heard are the words of King Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Believe in me and you will have life and life more abundantly. Come and enjoy life in my kingdom. So Jesus, I ask that we would hear your words more than any other word this morning. And it would strike the deepest part of our soul and bring life and joy and hope and forgiveness and cleansing. And we would leave here transformed. And whatever way that needs to happen in every heart in this room, we pray you would make it happen because that's who you are. And that's what you do. And help us to be a part of that. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.